a transcript of this podcast episode is available in the show notes of the Buzzsprout podcast site. Or if you are listening on another podcast player, you can go to storiesfrompalestine.info and read along in the related blog post for this episode. You are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast a podcast that is recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am a Dutch woman who is married to a Palestinian and I live with my husband and two children in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. I study the tour guide program at the Bethlehem Bible College and I produce a weekly podcast about the history and cultural heritage of Palestine. If you want to get a weekly email reminder when a new episode is online, if you want to follow the podcast for photos and extra content on social media, or if you want to do a much appreciated donation on the Kofi platform, then click on the link in the show notes of this podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back. This is the third part of the trilogy From Jerusalem to Jaffa. For this episode, I did an interview with Rami Sayer, who is a history teacher from Jaffa. And he also produces a podcast in Arabic about the history of Palestine. I can highly recommend his podcast. So if you speak Arabic, you can go to the show notes and find the link to his podcast. After recording the interview with Rami, I realized that it was going to be too much for one episode. So I decided to publish it in two parts. Today you can hear the first part of the history of Jaffa and the historic sites of this beautiful city. This is the third part of a trilogy that we did from Jerusalem to Jaffa. In the first part we went from Jerusalem to Latrun and then in the second part we passed Abu Roche. Actually we went a little bit back and we went to Abu Roche and then we visited Elud and Ramle. And now we are reaching to Jaffa. And I thought that for this episode, it would be much better to talk to somebody who actually is from Jaffa, lives in Jaffa, and is a historian. And in my friend list, I found somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. <laughs> and so I'm here sitting, talking to Rami, whom I've never met before, but we already have something in common, which is that we are both teachers of history and we both love Palestine. Rami, can you introduce yourself a little bit more? Thank you very much for giving me the chance to talk about Jaffa. I'm very glad to be here. My name is Rami. I was born in Jaffa. I was born and raised into a Christian Palestinian family. I was born and raised in Tarasanta School. The Catholic school and graduated from there. Then I decided to make a step forward and so I decided to become a teacher for history. So in 2011, after I finished my BA degree in Dortmund University, I made the second step with my study. I went to, which is specialized to teach people to become teachers. And I have my degrees since then, and I started to teach in Jaffa, only in my city, because there was a still a big lack in the position, especially teachers from Jaffa. So since 2011, I'm working in this position. This is my 10th year. 
in the curriculum that you are using, are you also talking about your local history or is that not even part of what you are teaching? We're teaching under the Israeli Ministry of Education. They are deciding, they are not renewing the curriculum, they are just having the same one. They are not changing, they are not adding, they are not taking out something. They are not renewing, they are not doing anything in order to make it attractive for the students. It can be attractive only for the teachers and sometimes it's also boring for us. For example, I'm teaching 8th grade, 9th grade, 10th grade and 11th grade. I also teach the elementary school, they're starting from the 6th grade. They are teaching them everything beside the 20th century. They are teaching the 20th century but generally. They're not focusing on the Palestinian issue because it's well known that it's not their issue. They're mentioning it as part of the Middle East subject. Only maybe on 10th grade they can listen to the word Palestine. Sometimes on 9th grade when they're mentioning the First World War and the Arabic Revolution against the Ottomans. But they're not focusing on the Palestinian issue as a regular issue or historical issue. And the most irritating thing is that they are stopping on 1948. So many students are asking me why, for example, we're not studying about the 1967 war, the recent history, 1990, what happened in Iraq, for example, 1987, the first intifada, 2000, the second intifada. No, they are not studying this, though it's a historical subject. Are you allowed or would you talk about it with your students outside of the curriculum or can that get you into troubles? We're in 2021 and I guess that still we are under control, but still I can have my own space. Even when I'm teaching, for example, sites people, even when I'm teaching the Ottoman era, even when I'm teaching the First World War or the Second World War. And personally, I am not obligated. I can tell the students the whole truth. As they say in the American court, the truth, nothing but the truth. So I'm not afraid of it. Maybe people say because I'm in a private school, but I guess every teacher can be free. He can do his duty, and at the same time he can do his humanity's duty, and to tell the people and tell the people's the truth that happened before 1948, not only 1948. We will talk about also Jaffa in 1948. And on this podcast, you can tell the full truth. <laughs> no need to hide anything. So let's dive into Jaffa. We went to Jaffa a few weeks ago. My children are five and seven years old. Their names are Louisa and Hadi. And that was the first time that they went to Jaffa and they remember like that they are old enough because they went when they were much younger. They don't remember that. And my daughter, Louisa, she is still talking about Jaffa almost every day. She loved it so much and she keeps asking, when are we going to Jaffa again? So I think that for a lot of people, when they visit Jaffa, there is this magic about the place, the harbor, the port, the old city. There is a lot of things to see and visit. And in the same time, there is the tragedy of the history, which is something that I sometimes mentioned to my daughter, but she's only seven. So she just saw the magic of it, let's say. So we're going to dive a little bit into the history of Jaffa and also 
talk about what you can see there if you go and visit. Because what we hope is that in the end, people who listen to the podcast in the future, when the world opens up again, they will come to visit Palestine and also visit you in Jaffa. Let's first talk about the name Jaffa, because I say Jaffa. I heard you already say Jaffa. I see on the signs Jaffo. So how should we say it? What does this name mean? Where does it come from? Why is Jaffa called Jaffa? Jaffa is a very old city, one of the oldest cities in the region, let's say, not only in Palestine, but it's not the oldest one. It's not like Damascus or Jericho or Jerusalem or Raqqa, but Jaffa is one of the cities, let's say the top 10 of the oldest cities in the region. And the meaning of Jaffa, let's say from the Canaanites, we can take it, which means beautiful. And you said it so a few minutes ago when you mentioned your daughter. Jaffa is so beautiful because it's on the seashore and it's not on a place that it's like a desert, like in the south, and it's a small hill. It's like 30 meters above the sea level, and it's very beautiful. That's why they call it Yopa. When I'm talking English, I say Jaffa. Though people are using Jaffa because it's in Arabic, so it's not wrong to say Jaffa. In Arabic, it's Jaffa, and in Hebrew, it's Yafo, and they took it from uh, old language, maybe the Canaanite itself. If you can go back to the history, it was actually when they conquered Jaffa and they entered the city and they're always mentioning the maybe not the real story, maybe it's real, maybe it's not, we cannot know, that the Egyptian went to Jaffa in order to take control over it. Their soldiers inside the big jaws. They called it in Greek legends, they also mention it. But I don't know if it's 100% right, because I heard it in the Greek mythology, that they entered the soldiers in the big jaws, and they entered through the big gates, and then they started uh, killing the people. We're not sure about this story. It's almost like the horse of Troy, the story of the Greek mythology of Troy. Yeah, exactly. So we don't know, because it's very old, maybe 2000 before Christ, so we cannot tell if it's a real story. But what's real that the Egyptian really occupied Jaffa. And nowadays we have inside old cities when they made the new renovation during the 60s, they dig inside the land and they saw the remains of the Egyptian era and also the remains of the Persian era and the Greek era and the Roman era. This is the first point of the history of Jaffa. I've also heard another Greek mythology about Jaffa, that it was Yopa Jaffa was named after the mother of Andromeda, who said that she and her daughter were more beautiful than the creatures that live in the sea. Do you know the story I'm talking about? The Greek mythology, and nowadays they have it inside the underground museum. They're mentioning this story because they want to have connection with the Greek mythology. It's a story that we're not mentioning a lot because it's a mythology and sometimes they are not real. We're talking about monsters and gods and everything. But we can mention the Greek era because Jaffa was part of Greece. So they're mentioning it, the lady that was captured. And her mother, I think, was called Cassiopeia. And this is a Greek mythology. 
I know that tour guides always love to tell stories, especially because, you know, people relate to these stories more than to the truth. And there is these big rocks outside in the water in front of the harbor of Jaffa. So I remember saying th that these rocks were the rocks that Andromeda was attached to. They wanted to sacrifice her to a sea monster. And then in the end, she was saved by another Greek god. Or he turned them because he was actually going around with the head of Medusa. So they looked into the eyes of Medusa and then they turned into big stone rocks. I mean, these are stories you would find in a tour guide book, for example. But these are not stories that the people, the Palestinians of Jaffa, are sharing with their children. This is not part of your tradition. I didn't mention that I'm also doing tours in Jaffa since 2009, before I became a teacher. I had my own books to read, the Palestinian resources, and later on I started reading much more about the history, but the 20th century's history. So you're right, we're not mentioning a lot of the old history. We're just passing by because it's very old and it's very boring, and it's irrelevant to our days. We can mention only the recent history or the modern history, because it's also attractive for the people who want to listen, not only for the truth, and they want to listen for the history, not a boring history. So I guess the Greek history is not that attractive to the people. And we cannot mention a lot beside the story that we mentioned. When you take people on a tour, maybe you can take us on a tour. What are the sites that you visit and then tell us a little bit the story behind those sites? When I'm taking the group inside the whole city, the first thing that I mentioned that unfortunately you're looking on the one third of the city because the two thirds of the city was by the British troops who did it on purpose in order to stop the Palestinian revolution in 1936. And as a Jaffa resident, we can be so sad to hear this kind of stories. And when you're opening the archive and you see the soldiers are taking photos and they're happy about the thing that they did, it makes us very sad and also angry about the British. By the way, they didn't apologize. Never. They didn't even apologize. So let the whole world know that the British are the first criminals, those who gave the Zionists the key for Palestine. And until these days, they are denying their crimes, but they know inside that they are the criminals. They destroyed Palestine, and they gave it to the Jewish Zionist settlements before 1948. So 1936 was only one part of their acts. So that is the fact that I'm letting the people know when they are with me in the tour. Even if they were Jewish, even if they were European, American, I don't care. I just say the truth, as I said. And they see by themselves, because they're passing by open space. I told them it's not an open space. It used to be a big neighborhood. Old city of Jaffa actually was 40 neighborhoods, small neighborhoods. They were one near each other. They were so crowded. Nowadays, when you're passing by St. Peter's Church, I'll mention it later, you see an open space. It's not an open space, actually. It's one of the neighborhoods that was destroyed by the British troops that they did it as an act against the Palestinian Revolution. 
I thank you again that you let me say those words about the reality of the history and the reality about the British government 2021. They are denying own acts, their own crimes. So this is the first, let's say, point can tourists or the activists, whoever can join me too. The remains, I'm taking them to St. Peter's Church, a very lovely church. Our church, it's uh, the Latin Catholic Church, was built over the remains of the old Crusader castle. Even our parents' generation called the church, not St. Peter's Church, but they called it the Castle Church, Kenisat al But it's actually St. Peter's Church because St. Peter was actually in Jaffa. He visited Jaffa for three days. And he stayed in Jaffa near the seashore, and Simon the Tanner hosted him for three days. This is a regular story, but the most important story is the thing that happened with Peter during the stay in Simon's house. He had a vision. An angel showed him many kinds of animals and called him Peter, you can eat. So Peter was surprised with this vision, first of all, and he was surprised that the angel is offering him non-appropriate meat. It's not by the Jewish tradition. It's not allowed to eat it. So he refused. But the second time or the third time, the angel told him, Peter, whatever God gave you, you cannot refuse. So this vision gave him a new way in order to spread the word of Christianity to the non-Jewish people, to the atheists. So this point in Jaffa was very important and that's why many people in Jaffa believed in St. Peter's message, which is Jesus Christ's message. And at the same time, Cornelius, the leader or chief of the Romanian troops, also hosted Peter in Caesarea and believed in Christianity. So this is one of the most important stories in Christianity. So Jaffa became very important to Christianity. Are there any other stories in Jaffa related to the Bible, now that we are talking about the biblical stories? King Solomon, for example, he brought the trees from Lebanon through Jaffa's harbor, seaport. And the prophet Jonah, was also mentioned that he was nearby the seashore of Jaffa. Do you happen to know where the maqam for Prophet Jonah is? No, actually no. I uh, I'll tell you, this is here in the West Bank near to Hebron in Halhul. <laughs> we learned this in the Bible College that him and also his father, his father has his maqam in Beit Umar, but it's interesting that also for Muslims, these prophets from the Old Testament, they are relevant. A lot of people, a lot of Christians around the world, they don't realize that for Muslims, many of the prophets that are mentioned in the Bible are also important and venerated by Muslims. So we just saw the St. Peter's Church and we heard about him staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. What is the next place that you would take us? By the way, when we are mentioning St. Peter, sometimes the Jewish tour guides, they are mentioning that Napoleon was inside this church or this convent, but it's wrong. What's right is that the convent was actually built by the Franciscan friars. 
a Franciscan monks. They came from Italy. St. Francis came to Egypt, actually. They visited Sultan al-Kamil, and they took permission to reopen the Latin parish, the Latin patriarchy in Palestine, in the Holy Land. That's why when we mention Terra Santa, it's actually the Holy Land, from the Latin word. So he took permission from Sultan Kamel, was in the 13th century, at the end of the 13th century, and he took permission so the Franciscan reopened the Latin Catholic Church, and they opened the, the churches in Jaffa, in Akka, in Haifa, though they are not Franciscan, and in Tiberias, of course, in Jerusalem, in Jericho, Ramle, of course, Nazareth, of course. So, since then, we have the Custodia di Terra Santa, the Franciscan that they re-enter Palestine again after the Crusaders left. So, this is the truth that we are mentioning. But Napoleon was actually downstairs, if you can mention, inside or nearby the Armenian church. The Armenian, they are approving the story. They say, yeah, he was here and he was inside our convent also. And there's a very famous painting, French painting, about Napoleon when he was checking out his soldiers who were sick because they got sick when he killed the citizens of Jaffa. So the, the, Mal- I don't know if it's malaria, I forgot the, the disease. The plague, I think. It was spread all over the city and his soldiers got sick and he came to check on them. It's in the Louvre. Yeah, it's in the Louvre, exactly. The painting is by Antoine Jean Gros. I just found this information because I was reading a little bit more in my preparation. And it was the first time I saw this painting. And it was really interesting because reading the description, it says that on the painting is basically the first time that Napoleon Bonaparte is depicted in all his glory and he is starting to prepare himself for his high position of becoming a king. And then you see him touching the person who is having the plague. And it is almost the same as Jesus, how he is depicted when he used to heal people with leprosy. And leprosy is also a disease that is very contagious. So people would kind of see on this painting like, look, Napoleon Bonaparte, he cared about his soldiers and he even touched them just like Jesus used to do. (laughs) Yeah. Now, can you tell the people who don't know the history of Palestine well, what did Napoleon Bonaparte do in Palestine? When and why did he come? This story we are teaching the 8th grade, by the way. It's very lovely that they are studying about this history when they're studying about Napoleon Bonaparte, generally. So they're starting with his words in Europe, and later on they're mentioning when he tried to occupy Egypt in 1799. So this is his tragedy when he came to Egypt and he couldn't uh, manage to keep his military, his uh, sea military, if you can say so, because the British destroyed all of it. So he stuck in uh, Egypt, and he didn't announce a war over the Ottomans. He said that I'm going to Egypt because I want to fix the situation, and because of the situation in the city, and also the French traders are suffering from the Mamluks, so I'm coming to make order. This is his point of view, of course, but he came actually to be inside the way between the Mediterranean and the Middle East, uh, India. 
And when he decided to enter Palestine, he was thinking that before the Ottomans will come, I will surprise them. So he took his troops from Egypt through Gaza, and he went on all over until uh, Ramle. He entered Ramle, and he came west to Jaffa, from the east side of Jaffa. When he entered Jaffa, many stories mentioned that his soldiers, there were a few hundreds maybe, maybe less, and they started negotiating. So one of the stories mentioned that the Ottomans opened the gates for Napoleon from the east side, because the old city of Jaffa was surrounded by five gates, three from the east and two from the west. You don't have any gates from the north and from the south. From the west, he, he couldn't enter because it's from the seaside. So he entered from the east, and mainly maybe from the main gate. We call it the main gate. Nowadays it's not gate, it's like a street that people are passing by, and the cars also are passing by. There's a traffic light, and it's very clear that it was the main gate. So he entered with his troops, and he started killing the troops of the Ottomans, and also he started killing people who covered inside the city and thought that they won't be harmed. There's another story that he said that the Christian families, when they heard that Napoleon is coming, they fled away to Ramle. And they knew that Napoleon maybe won't harm them. The same story was also repeated when the Islamic troops came to Jaffa and the Islamic refugees families left the city. So I'm not sure that this story is 100% true, but it was mentioned in one of the resources. But anyway, Napoleon entered and he started the citizens or the people of Jaffa. They mentioned maybe 5,000. That's why we don't have true Jaffa residents. It's like Napoleon cut the history of the people. Maybe few of them remain. And since 1800, Jaffa started to rebuild itself. And the Ottomans got aware that this is a city that they should and they must reopen. So they started to take control again. They made a new order and they brought a new governor. And in 1809, maybe less than 10 years after Napoleon, came Mahmoud Abu Nabut, Mahmoud Aga. He was so strong person. He was mentioned in the historical resources, Arabic, Hebrew, and English also. And the Ottomans gave him the permission to become the Jaffa governor. He was a very successful person. He started to reopen the city again, to renew the city again. He built few monuments, which was destroyed again in 1936. He renewed the mosque, the big mosque that is inside the old city. We called it Mahmoudiyya. He didn't build it because it was built on the 18th century. He came in the 19th century. And he built also markets near the mosque. So he got Jaffa on the map again, 1809. And so on. The Ottomans started to understand that Jaffa shouldn't be left again. So this is one of the monuments that we have mentioned. If we're entering the Ottoman era, we still have monuments inside the city, inside the walls, and outside the walls. The Ottomans occupied Palestine and the Arabic lands, Syria, Lebanon, 
Iraq also, and east of Jordan River, and the Egypt also on the 16th century, 1515 actually. They took control over these lands, Shia, the one who took control over the lands of Iran and Iraq and Syria. So they took control over all of these lands and they stayed until the First World War. So it's 400 years of rule. And they had a lot of negative issues, and they have good acts, but at the end of the 19th century, they start to understand that they are way behind the European countries, and they started to reopen the gates for the European in order to make new relations with the French and the British, and even the Russian, who were the strongest enemy for many years. We learned in the Bible College about the era of modernization called the Tanzimat. They started to open foreign embassies and to allow also foreign missions to come and to buy lands and to build buildings and to build churches. So this is in the mid-19th century, I guess. Actually, it was step by step. The last defeat of the Ottomans in the Balkan was in 1878 against the Russians and the Balkan people, the Slavs. When they evacuated the area, the Ottomans had only Albania. They lost all the Balkans. When they lost to the Russians, they understood that the Russians are stronger than them. And they are not only stronger than them, they are intending to enter Palestine and to build churches and to help the pilgrims to come to Palestine, to the Holy Land. Not only the Greek Orthodox or the Catholic. And they started to rethink about their relations with the European countries. And we can have an example in Jaffa about the Scottish school, 1864. When my late mother was teaching their Arabic for the elementary school. And it was a very nice era when I was visiting there and uh, taking a look at uh, study and uh, classes and looking at the lovely building. And when I started studying history by my own, I understood that actually it was during that era that I mentioned. And the stones that they brought, they brought it from the walls of Jaffa, most of them. 1882, the French came to Jaffa and they built Collège de Frères. It's a well-known French school. It's very big. It's from kindergarten until high school. Nowadays it's still functioning and it's a mixed school. It's French, but French people are not there. Only maybe teachers, few of them are, are French. But it's a very mixed school. It, it has a lot of nationalities. You can have here Palestinians, the Israeli citizens of the Palestinians, Israeli Jewish, Israeli Russian, also the diplomatic families especially the French speakers. And it's a very big school that is functioning until this day by the French curriculum and the Scottish by the Scottish curriculum. And as you mentioned, the churches, not all of them were new, but a few of them were built at that time, at that time, the 19th century. Actually, no, they built only institutions because the churches were built before that era and after that era, the 20th century and way before. When we speak about the Ottomans, I remember that when you enter Jaffa, there is this one big clock tower that really draws all our eyes to it. 
Can you explain what is that clock tower? Nowadays we put it as a symbol of Jaffa, though Jaffa had a lot of symbols. The seaport, the orange. The clock tower is very important to our history. It was built actually in 1901. And it wasn't built just in order to build something, because the last Ottoman Empire, the Sultan Abdul Hamid II, celebrated 25th anniversary and started building very big monuments inside of the main cities, Jaffa, Nablus, Jerusalem, suffered also. Those monuments, the biggest of them, the biggest Khan al-Ongan, it's like one big hotel and at the top of it it's the clock tower. But our clock tower is very beautiful, it's not a small one. By the way, the clock tower in Jerusalem, the British destroyed it. Because they had to say that it wasn't... It didn't fit with the theme of the old walls. Exactly, exactly. But of course there was something behind it. I guess it was too much of a sign of the power of the position of the Ottomans, so they wanted to get rid of it. Yeah, and thank God that they didn't destroy the rest of the clock towers, really. So sometimes when we when we're looking at those monuments, we thank God that not everything was destroyed. So it was built in 1901 like the rest of the monuments, and it was functioning all the time. The mayor of Jaffa, the last mayor of Jaffa, Dr. Yusuf Haikal, mentioned in his biography that this clock was ringing every 15 minutes. Nearby this clock tower, we had the Ottomans' monuments also. One of them is still remaining, but it became a hotel. It was the Kishle. The Kishle is the prison, by the name of the prison in Turkish language. And it was functioning even after uh, the Ottomans left. The British took control and took it as a police head station. And also the Israelis, when uh, they occupied Jaffa in May 1948, they also made the same step as 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I forgot the date. They closed the new station in order to show off that we are here. And this is one of the stories that we can mention about the actuality, and we will talk about it later. So nowadays it's a hotel, it was opened maybe three years ago. It have two sections, old one and new one. They built over the old building. Nearby is the mosque, the big mosque that I mentioned, it was built 1710. And surrounding it, it had the shops that was actually belongs to the Muslim community, which were called Waqf. And the Israeli, when they controlled Jaffa, they didn't give back the shops to the Muslims. And they took control and they hired these shops to anyone who wants to rent it. The next side of it, we had the biggest monument that was destroyed by the Zionist troops on 4th of January 1948. They put the bombs near the the new Saraya, and the British troops didn't see them, and they ran away. And the bomb actually hit the building and the next building and destroyed the three stories of the new Saraya, which is the building of the Ottomans, which was built on 1892. It's like the government offices. The Jewish story is a very big line. They put signs or two signs, they put it on the wall of the, the building. Because nearby it's the building of the municipality of Jaffa, which was built also at the end of the 19th century. 
The building wasn't touched, it was maybe a little bit destroyed, but it was complete. It's still complete. But anyway, on the wall, they had two signs. One of the signs mentioned the bombing. And when they mentioned the bombing, they said that the Arab, they were inside of these buildings, and that's why we bombed it. And they didn't even mention the amount, the number of the civilians who got killed. 28, and one of them was a football player for the Islamic club of Jaffa. So, this is the monument that is not anymore, it was destroyed. They just renewed the columns, the four columns in front of the building. Next to it, I mentioned the municipality of Jaffa. It's a good issue to mention that Jaffa became a municipality when Abdul Hamid II became a sultan. At his first year, first or second year, he wanted to show that he's democratic. And in order to show the European that I'm not a one-man ruler, and he opened municipalities in the main cities that I mentioned, the Palestinian one, and also the Syrian and the Lebanese. And Jaffa had the new municipality in 1876. From that time, we had municipality until the 20th century, when Hafez Bek Saeed, who was a very rich guy and who was a very important guy that lived in Jaffa and was not a young guy, he was a very active person and he was also accepted from the community of Jaffa, from the Arabs, Palestinians, Christians and Muslims. And in 1919, he became the mayor of Jaffa and the British accepted the fact that all of the institutions of Jaffa accepted that this guy, this person, will be our mayor. He was a very successful one because he was a mayor for 20 years, almost 20 years, until the Palestinian Revolution, so imagine. He was a strong person, he got strong personality. And three years ago, I started to connect with his grandson, Nabil. He's now living in Cairo. He's a refugee. He's not a citizen of Egypt. Through Facebook and WhatsApp, he's telling me his stories, personal stories sometimes also. He told me very nice stories about his grandfather that he built the building that is now in Nuzha neighborhood. A very large building, very big building, three stories and actually built it for his own family, and the first floor was for the municipality. So imagine this kind of richness that this guy had, not only richness, nationality, awareness. So I was lucky to know Nabil, his grandson, that he kept telling me stories about his grandfather. We are reaching to the last century, let's say, and we are in the 20th century, And there is part of that history that we have to mention that is not an easy bit of history. And I know that there may be even Palestinians listening to this podcast who had family in Jaffa and who were expelled from Jaffa in 1948. And in order to understand what was the scale of what happened to Jaffa and its residents, we will continue with part two next week, Monday. Thank you for listening. 
Don't forget to click on the link in the show notes to connect on social media, subscribe for the weekly email reminder, and go to the Kofi website, the platform where the podcast can receive donations and where I post unique content. And this week, you can hear Rami talking about the Yafa oranges, very famous oranges, not mentioned in the podcast, but only available on kofi.com slash stories from Palestine. That's it for now. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>